Welcome to Healthy Habits, Happy Homes with the Guelph Family Health Study, where we share research and practical tips for applying it to your own family. Each week, we'll bring you evidence-based health information from experts. Our quick tips will help you create healthy habits for a happy home. Welcome back to Healthy Habits, Happy Homes. My name is Catherine, and I'm here with my co-host, Eli. Today's episode is all about the bugs in our gut and how they impact our health. And so joining us today is Dr. Emma Allen Rico, who's a researcher in the Department of Molecular and Cellular Biology at the University of Guelph, and she's well known for her research about the gut microbiome. As an accomplished researcher in this area, as well as a mother of two, Emma is the perfect person to speak to us about gut health and what families can do to feed their good bugs. Welcome, Emma. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. It's lovely to be here. So to get us started, I'm hoping that you can tell us a little bit about your current work about gut health and how it relates to eating more fruits and vegetables and health in general. Yeah, sure. So um, so I actually have a lot of projects on the go, but not all of them are about healthy eating. Some of them are about diseases. And, and I think it's a little bit of a shame sometimes that we tend to associate health research with disease research. That's yeah. really what it is. Um, and so we're trying to sort of turn that on its head and start thinking about, well, what are some of the things that we can do to keep our microbes healthy based on what we're learning from diseased microbes or, or diseases where microbes are, are causing a problem? And so we've done a little bit of work looking at um, uh, things like uh, some of what what are some of the foods that we eat and how do they change the microbiome. Um, we're very very interested in things like uh, food additives um, uh, and uh, how they can damage the microbiome. Um, and uh, then we have obviously a number of other projects that are looking at different uh, microbes in different disease states. And uh, and so all of those are telling us what we need to be um, kind of looking after in terms of our microbes and uh, and how we should be doing that. Great, yeah. And just to, to continue on this, so the gut microbes could be a little bit mystifying for, for the public. And so what, what I want to ask is where does it all start? How do we get a gut microbiome? How do you get a gut microbiome? Well, the thing is, you it's generally accepted that you start off sterile. And when you're in, in your mother's womb, uh, you're floating around there in a kind of a sterile environment. And um, the process of colonization begins at the point that the waters break, or perhaps even slightly before. I mean, the science is divided over that um, at the moment, and there is no conclusion right now. But certainly during the process of birth, that's when you pick up most of your gut microbes um, or most of the microbes that start you off in, that, in your journey through life. And so, uh, you know, the process of birth is messy. Um, and, uh, and actually a baby sits in the birth canal for swallowing microbes for, uh, for quite some time before it's actually expelled. Um, and, uh, and there's no real, there's no accident that the exit to the birth canal is, is very close to the exit to the gut. And, uh, and there are in fact a lot of microbes or microbial species that share uh, the, the gut niche or the, or the vaginal niche and, and so um, that they're very kind of closely linked. And so um, there's also some evidence that during the third trimester of pregnancy, a mother's microbiome changes to kind of um, uh, make uh, an ecosystem, a microbial ecosystem that's better at changing um, uh, substrates or foods that's given into calories that, that help to feed the baby. And so there's all sorts of things that happen that we think are, are really good for the microbiome. And, uh, and then a baby is um, breastfed, 
and so hopefully and uh, we now know that breastfeeding contains uh, or breast milk contains an awful lot of really good stuff and we've known that for a long time we know that breast is best and all that uh, but what we didn't know was that um, uh, breast milk contains uh, compounds that only microbes can digest and some of the microbes that, that are not all microbes only the microbes that are very important to digest uh, or for digestion in the very early uh, stages of, of life. Interesting. So how do we get exposed to the right kind of microbes? Where do we yes. find them? Yes. Well, um, I suppose we don't really know the answer to that question yet. I mean, there's a lot of work that's going on in that arena now. What we do understand, though, is that um, a lot of those exposures seem to come from microbes that perhaps live in the soil. Uh, they speak to a time when humans live very closely to the soil and we weren't so sanitary <laughs> about yeah, everything. Like yeah, and time. yeah, so there's, there's a lot of microbes that you can pick up from the soil which can colonize the gut and can actually be really um, beneficial. And uh, uh, so uh, the problem is that, of course, there are lots of microbes in the soil which can also be pathogenic. Mm -hmm. And so I think people tend to be much more aware of microbes that cause disease than the ones that, that, that are actually good for your health. And we actually, the re there's a good reason for that. We've been studying the pathogens, the disease-causing microbes, for you know 200 years, and we've only really, in the last 20 years, started to look at some of these other beneficial microbes. So we know very little about them. Even realizing that uh, that that people who are sick uh, in lots of disease states uh, tend to have a much less diverse microbial ecosystem. In other words, a lot fewer species than people who are healthy. Um, we don't know if that's cause or effect right now for some diseases, but in some uh, specific diseases is absolutely causal and uh, so having a high diversity seems to be very important. What's really interesting and one of the things that we study in my lab, um, we're trying to get to grips with how this happens, is that uh, children of the up to the age of about three seem that's when that's when uh, you pick up your microbes and they those microbes that microbial community that develops and stays with you for the rest of your life. Uh, pretty much. I mean, there are some changes that happen, but broadly speaking, they're very, very stable and it becomes very difficult for them to shift. So if you do not colonize yourself with the right kinds of microbes before the age of three, it's like the window is closed and it becomes very difficult to get colonized with those microbes. So if you happen to get colonized by microbes or a microbial ecosystem that isn't as health associated as perhaps it is for someone else, then it seems to be that uh, that you're kind of stuck with that ecosystem and it may predispose you to diseases later in life and uh, things like allergy and asthma. That's quite ironic, I think, because children at that age probably don't have much control over what their environment is and, and yes. what they can do. And so what are you know some ideas or some tips for families with children that young when they're thinking about exposing their children to the right types of microbes yeah um so it's very difficult because we live again in a world where we uh, the news is dominated by stories about horrific infections and and these kind of crazy things and i think it becomes very difficult for people who are not microbiologists to realize that um that there are only of really just a handful of microbial species that cause disease and for the large part most of those uh, can be protected against through vaccination strategies and in fact we have very good uh, vaccination strategy for um, uh, for young children in Canada so we need to be taking advantage of that um, there are some microbes that are, of course are very um, dangerous that we can't vaccinate against things like uh, salmonella and certain forms of E. coli um, and I think but for the most part you can control well completely in fact you can control uh, against picking these things up by knowing how to cook food safely and I think most people 
kind of know that. Um, but the problem is we take it a little bit too far. So we will start then using antimicrobial soaps and products and, uh, you know, bleach all over the place and sprays that sanitize the air, all because we're scared of this sort of small handful of microbes. The problem is that we don't what, what people don't realize is that uh, those sprays and sanitizing antimicrobial things are actually also destroying the beneficial microbes. And in a lot of cases, and in fact, some of my research from my lab has shown uh, that some of these beneficial microbes are actually protecting you against infection in the first place. And so, uh, so, so some tips, I guess, is um, the first one is to go through your cupboards and to find anything that says antimicrobial or um, antibacterial and and like soaps and things like that unless you're performing surgery at home <laughs> which hopefully no one isn't uh then you they, there's really no business of having those kinds of things and if you wash your hands with just regular soap and water then that is perfectly fine to get rid of these pathogenic organisms and uh, and then the other bugbear i have is um is hand sanitizers you know they're everywhere and i think you know that's right yes yes and uh, and i see them especially on kids backpacks and i think that's a little scary for me because what we're doing is teaching children to be afraid of microbes and yes i mean hand sanitizers have their place but in reality it's much more healthy to teach children just to wash their hands with soap and water and to do that regularly than it is to just kind of conveniently take some hand sanitizer and in fact hand sanitizer can damage the skin it's a you know it contains toxic products it's not the greatest stuff and and it's not teaching kids properly uh, that they should have a healthy respect for um, for microbes, but uh, but they should also respect the, the good things that they do. For sure. Mm. So in thinking about the, the good things that the bugs do, how mm -hmm. do we help keep them healthy? I know you mentioned before there are certain foods that we should be eating or shouldn't be eating. Can yes. Yeah, sure. So um, this is a really sort of area that I'm absolutely passionate about only because I know that my own gut is not great. And there's, uh, there's a lot that I've been trying to do to improve that, but I kind of missed my window. <laughs> you know, I'm over the age not of three. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but the biggest thing is to really um, uh, consider the fact that most of your beneficial microbes live in your colon. That's the last part of your gut before the exit. Um, it's in fact a very exquisitely designed um, uh, sort of part of the body which um, is particularly set up to allow microbes to carry out their metabolism, so their biochemical work for you. And that, and that biochemical work is, is what's really important at driving your health. So the thing is microbes need to, need to eat just like you do. And so um, the microbes in the gut, they have very, generally speaking, they have very specific metabolisms. And some of those specific metabolisms include uh, or require the need for uh, very complex sugars. So what are complex sugars? We call it fiber. So if you eat fiber and a lot of fiber, then your human side of you, the human part of your body, the upper part of your small intestine where you digest your, your food, um, it can't really touch fiber because it doesn't have the ability to break down to, to your metabolism is a bit puny compared to microbial metabolism, okay. which is really amazing. And, uh, and so you don't do anything to that fiber. It just passes through to the colon and the colon is where the magic happens is where the microbes are uh, these specific microbes that are very good at breaking down these sugars actually break them down, but they don't just break them down and eat them. They break them down into products which are, uh, metabolites which are extremely beneficial to health 
and some of these uh, products have we've very much set up as humans to absorb these in our intestines and use them as, as beneficial products and we're only just learning about some of them now which is really incredible so uh, so the best thing um, that, that you can do is eat a lot of fiber so where do you get fiber from you eat fruits and you eat vegetables and you eat whole grains and uh, those are the kind of the three things so everybody kind of knows this but I think you know you, you listen to Health Canada telling you you need to eat five to six servings of fruits and vegetables yeah. a day it can be really hard to do but if you knew that you've got this, this entire army of microbes of beneficial microbes in your gut that are relying on you to do that then it maybe psychologically helps to push you to do that a yeah. bit more yeah. so that's what I hope might have piqued everyone's interest when we said that those byproducts of um, the, the microbes could be beneficial you know for a variety of reasons what yes. are some health benefits that are associated with those byproducts of the gut yeah. metabolism. Yeah, so there's, there's one particular um, product um, that people may or may not have heard of, but it's, it's a short-chain fatty acid, which is a nasty chemical-sounding <laughs> name. So nobody needs to worry about that, but it's called butyrate. Butyrate, that's easy. Yes, and, uh, and butyrate is actually it's a very small molecule. Um, and it smells particularly terrible. In fact, it's one of the reasons that poop smells like poop. <laughs> um, but it's um, but it is an incredible molecule because our our own body's colonocytes. These are the cells that line the the um, the surface or the, the the surface of the colon are actually designed to use it as a fuel source. So your microbes your your microbes are driving the ability for your colonocytes or your colon to be healthy, right? Wow. So they're actually feeding your colonocytes. And then there are other short chain fatty acids. Uh, one of them is called acetate. You would know that better from that's the key ingredient in vinegar. Um, uh, also smells pretty pungent, not quite as bad as poop. Yeah. Uh, that's also really important. That has some uh, some other effects in the body. Well known physiological effects on uh, on gut health and uh, movement, peristalsis, keeping you regular, all of those kinds of things. <laughs> uh, it's probably not a good idea. You don't want to do that. You give yourself heartburn, I should think, rather than anything else. Um, but you know, why would you drink it if your microbes are actually making enormous amounts of it? You just need to provide them with the food sources that they need to be able to do that, which is fiber. Which is fiber. And uh, at the same time, microbes are also making things like B vitamins, massive amounts of B vitamins, vitamin K, other things that you can get from the food that you eat, but it's much more bioavailable when the microbes make it for you. And uh, so, you know, perhaps again, you eat fiber and nothing else and that's great yeah. and what's really also very interesting um, you know I don't want to leave protein out of this but um, we know that protein is obviously very important for energy uh, you know meats and nuts and other things that contain high amounts of protein are all very good for you but what we also know is that if you just eat a diet that's full of protein um, then you're going to force those microbes in your gut to carry out a very different form of metabolism to what they used to and when they do that, they actually make some particularly undesirable products. So when they break down proteins, they tend to make things which contain uh, nitrogen, which is part of protein, uh, things like urea, uh, things like amines, um, things like um, uh, ammonia, and other things which actually are irritants to the gut. So you need to be able to balance these out. And the way nature does it is it makes sure that the microbes that live in the gut actually prefer a, uh, you know, a, a fiber supplement than they do a protein like feed yeah. if you like so if they're provided with fiber then they will eat that preferentially or they'll break it down preferentially 
over the protein. But if you just eat protein and no fiber, then you're basically switching things around the other way and that can actually be detrimental to health. And the best example of that is there's a particular amine that is made that's called trimethylamine or trimethylamine or TMA. And this particular amine is, um, is really uh, being associated in the past few years with uh, atherosclerosis. So what happens is it's another small molecule, it's produced in the colon by the action of bacteria and then it's absorbed by the body and it creates uh, another molecule called trimethylamine N-oxide and that is what has been heavily associated with atherosclerosis and so there's the direct link there between having a high protein diet and having you know poor heart health. So um, that's just one example that's been studied. It's very, very difficult to study this, as you can imagine, because of very complex <laughs> communities. Uh, but I think that that's a really interesting one because now we know. We know for sure that that's what's going on. And yeah. so I'm not saying that we shouldn't eat protein. I'm just saying that it should be very, very carefully balanced with yeah. the amount of fiber and other mm -hmm. and fruits so and vegetables we eat. So a balanced diet full of all of the different types of foods. Lots of fruits and vegetables, lots of whole grains, protein, and um, other sources. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And speaking of, of feeding our microbes, a lot of people um, these days are taking probiotic supplements or yes. are interested in either consuming prebiotics um, in their food or, or buying prebiotic supplements. So yeah. could you talk to us about that and, and uh, what should families with young children know about those as well? Yeah, okay. So, well, prebiotics and probiotics are actually quite different to each other. So um, prebiotics are actually exactly what I've just been telling you. They're, they're basically the types of food that beneficial microbes like to eat. Um, and uh, they're marketed as sort of like um, convenient forms like uh, psyllium fiber and um, uh, inulin and other kinds of uh, uh, hard to digest fibers that are put into a capsule or they spring you sprinkle it on your food and you eat it. And, uh, and th there's lots of very good things about those. But I'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, so the other than probiotics are alive microorganisms and the definition is that they're live organisms that when taken in adequate amounts have beneficial effects on health. Um, and the problem with probiotics is that it's a very overused kind of meme almost these days right <laughs> yes that's right so you know you'll you'll hear people say i drink kefir because it contains probiotics well the problem is no it doesn't not unless those uh, the strains that are used to make the kefir are actually being designated as probiotics it may contain beneficial organisms but the actual definition of a probiotic relies on science to be able to say whether or not it has beneficial effects on the body and that doesn't just happen naturally It's not that I'm against probiotics, I'm against the way they're marketed yeah. as a sort of like a panacea for everything. <laughs> and uh, yeah. exactly, exactly. But like, um, but I didn't want to sort of, um, I've sort of mentioned that probiotics are not the same as fermented foods, but there are some good things about fermented foods. Okay. And one of the great things about fermented foods that I think people kind of overlook is I think that the benefits are actually coming from the microbes that are living in there. But most of those microbes will die actually during the process of fermentation. But what they leave behind are those short-chain fatty acids, those things I was telling you about that actually help. And those short-chain fatty acids, those, those small molecules, are very stable and they can pass through the gut. So they may actually be imparting beneficial health effects, but it's not the microbes themselves in the gut doing that. It's their products that happen during the process of fermentation. So that's why I'm a little bit uh, sort of, um, I hang back a little bit in calling those probiotics. Mm -hmm. 
but I don't want to say that they're not healthy. And in fact, I love fermented food and I'll, I'll eat as much of yeah. it as I can. Would you say that fermented foods then should be consumed uh, on a regular basis to have um, a long-term benefit? I think so, yes, because they're, they're, a, they're a food product. So, you know, as soon as they've passed through the gut as well, they've gone. So there's the sorts of things you're going to eat them, then you need to eat them on a regular basis. I don't think they should. The thing is, you know, when you hear about all these fads, these diet fads, uh, you know, someone says, oh, I was, uh, someone's t someone told me I should eat some fermented food. And so that's all they eat, you know, right. that, that's, that's not the way to do it either. You have to have a very balanced diet and this should be part of a healthy, balanced diet. The good news is there's lots of ways to get the benefits of, there's lots of different fermented foods out there. Yeah. And some of them are really fun, like kimchi, if you ever tried oh, kimchi. Oh, kimchi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, there's, there's lots of great ways and you can even make that at home, you know, and sauerkraut and all these things. And they're very healthy. And, and uh, one thing that I would say is that, you know, my kids don't like either of those things. But the reason they don't like either of those things is because I didn't know how to make them or even knew that they were good for you yeah. <laughs> uh, when they were young. But if you've got really young kids and you introduce these kinds of foods early enough mm -hmm. that it becomes part of their diet, they love it. Uh, I mean, I know kids can be picky. My first daughter was very picky and, and it took a lot of persuading for her to try something new. But I think that pays dividends, that persuasion, if you can really, really try and, and be inventive about how you introduce those foods to a child. Mm -hmm. You know, even making happy faces on a plate with some of oh, these things sure. is, is really yeah. important because if you can get them past that so that they like these things, you know, my youngest child eats so many blueberries <laughs> that she, I'm almost like, uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. Blueberries are great, but, uh, but you know, I'm sure that sometimes her, her mouth looks covered in like, you know, blueberry juice and we wonder what's going on. But, uh, uh, but that's because as a child, that's what I gave her as a snack. And so she loves them. And I think that that's, uh, so that's really important. Yeah, it is really interesting that um, you know, our taste buds are sort of formed by the age of six. Yeah. So the new foods that we like, that, that's kind of set. There'll be some new things that you may like later on, but yeah. really the, the base of your foods are set by age six and your taste preferences. But your, your gut microbiota is kind of set by age three, so it really does highlight the importance of getting a variety and exposing our kids to new foods really early on. Yes, it does, it does. And, and, in, and I mentioned in the beginning, that one of the things I'm really worried about is not necessarily what we're feeding uh, our kids that we want them to eat but some of the things that we might be feeding them inadvertently that we don't want them to eat and so one of the things that we're working on in my lab are, are some of these food additives mm -hmm. we're particularly worried about uh, and not all food additives are bad some of them are actually quite good uh, but particularly artificial food additives that are added really not not for any reason but to improve the texture of the food or the way that it's that it's made um, uh, and uh, the artificial ones the things like tartrazine uh, sunset yellow <laughs> and they're, di they're just labeled as color on the labels in, in Canada so it can be very difficult for, for parents to know yeah. um, so I guess my my uh, advice there would be to look at all foods even the things which you think are healthy for kids like apple snacks and um, cheese snacks and things like that mm. often contain color and uh, it takes a bit of looking around sometimes to find the ones that don't contain color and to know whether they contain natural color or not. So right. I guess my um, my advice is that most uh, manufacturers who add natural colors, I have no problems with natural colors, uh, who add their natural colors to the foods, they, they normally put on the label natural color. 
But if it just says color, it probably isn't good color. Yes. Yeah, a lot of people must be wondering, well, gosh, if it's not safe, then why is it in our foods? But you know, when these things were yeah. being approved, I'm sure they, they didn't really know what was beneficial or not for the gut microbiome. Yeah, in fact, uh, so the, the work on azo dyes, these particular reds and yellow colors um, first came out. So azo dyes were thought to be healthy. Uh, or not healthy, but but not damaging to health, uh, because they they would inject them into rats and and see the rats didn't do anything, but that's because you didn't give them to the rat's gut and that to the micro okay. micros didn't see it. That what's going on with the azo dyes is that the micros in the gut can break these things down very easily and they break them down into compounds which really don't look very nice. In fact, some of them we don't even know what they are. There's no name for these compounds, so we don't know what they do to the gut. But we can't we can't imagine they do anything good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, my advice would be, well, until we figure that out, uh, there's, there's absolutely no reason for any of these food colorings we put in there. In fact, in most of Europe, they've been banned or, or very greatly reduced. And all they're doing is coloring the food. They have no nutritional value whatsoever. So can we just take them out? Yeah, I always <laughs> think that I have a, a cupcake recipe that I'll share on our Guelph Family Health Study Facebook page. Um, it's instead of using red food coloring to make the red velvet cupcakes, it uses beets. Oh, yeah, perfect. Uh, so on that note, uh, thank you so much for joining us. No, you're welcome. We learned so much today about the gut microbiome. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to have to have you back for another episode. <laughs> this is really just kind of the, the peak of the iceberg in terms of what we can learn from you. So thank you so yeah. much. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. As for our Healthy Habits, Happy Homes podcast tradition, we'd like to leave you with some important take-home points about today's podcast. So remember that when it comes to the diversity and number of good bugs in your gut, the early years really matter. By the age of three, the composition of the bugs in your gut is almost already established. So here are some important take-home points to help kids have a healthy colony to start with, but also for parents to maintain a healthy gut. So remember that you need to feed your bugs too. To have a healthy gut microbiome, it's important to increase the amount of fiber you're eating. So get lots of fruits and veggies and whole grains every single day. Also, try to limit the use of antimicrobial products. Things like hand sanitizer may actually be killing the bacteria that are helping us. And those bacteria are protecting us from the harmful ones. And finally, avoid artificial colors in your food. These artificial colors may be killing the good bugs and making them produce unhealthy byproducts in our colon. Natural color is the way to go and it's labeled in Canada. So check out the nutrition facts tables and ingredients lists. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Healthy Habits, Happy Homes. We can't wait to have you tuning with us next week. But in the meantime, if you'd like to connect, you can visit our website, www.guelphfamilyhealthstudy.com or visit us on Facebook at Guelph Family Health Study. Thanks and have a great week.